for a lot of folks that are watching this, you're probably been wondering what we've been doing and why we haven't been posting a lot. And so, uh, this episode is one of the reasons why Brian, you've been working on this new series. I know you teased it a little bit, but will you just tell people, um, why, why you wanted to do this? Right. And tell us a little bit about our, fr- our first guest this week, which is who is Danny Rubin. So um, the reason I wanted to do this was I thought that I would like other people to have that experience, at least vicariously, of being able to sit in a room and talk to these people uh, about craft, not about what a big fan you are of this thing or that thing that they've done but about how they do what they do. This is a fun interview. Is there anything that people should be looking for, for Dan, from Danny as far as like things that stood out to you to not miss? A lot of people will see, you know, they see Groundhog Day and they think, oh, that's funny. But Danny wants to be more than just funny. He really wants to have something to say. Um, and I think that's what makes Groundhog Day a classic. It does have something to say. It isn't just the gimmick. It could have been a, a gimmick and it was more than that. So I would listen to why he does what he does. Awesome. All right. First episode of Masters of the Craft with Danny Rubin. Hello, and welcome to You Are a Storyteller, Masters of the Craft, a conversational series with author and filmmaker Brian McDonald. In this episode, Brian is joined by screenwriter and playwright Danny Rubin, best known for his work on the beloved movie Groundhog Day. Danny talks about his journey to becoming a writer, how he honed his craft, and how he uses his experiences to teach others how to write in the entertainment industry. When I was writing more comic books and I tell people at a party that I wrote comic books, they had all these misconceptions about what, what that was and what that meant. Uh, and, and I never, I wrote some comics that people knew, but a lot of them were like comic books people never heard of. So, uh, What's the biggest misconception when you tell people what you do? Like if you're at a party and like, hey, what do you do? What do you what do you say? What's the answer that you give them? And what what is their response? And what's the biggest misconception about what you do? I I don't know. I guess at some point they the first thing they want to know is, do you have you ever had anything produced? Uh-huh. And then I have that uncomfortable moment where it's like, do I tell them I wrote Groundhog Day? Have you ever heard of Groundhog Day? Now it's hard to know how humble to be because it's a classic. Um, right. And, and yet sometimes I'll be all or, or getting ready for a big compliment and then they'll go, oh, I've never seen it. No, <laughs> yeah. Um, so misconception. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they think they assume that I have a hundred titles that they just don't know about, but they're just being polite. And it's like, no, no, just two or three. Just yeah. Just four. <laughs> yeah. About the lifestyle. Also, I really don't know what they can see. But I mean, it's a good question, but I, I don't have a good answer for it. No, that's OK. That's OK. Um, well, that's an interesting thing. I, I've been lucky enough to know a few people who have. Uh, have created either created classic characters or classic shows or classic uh, movies or been in them or whatever. And, and it is an interesting relationship you have with those things, right? <laughs> Cause they're almost separate and apart from you. Right. Is that the way you feel? Yeah, well, of course. Um, and yet not separate, you know, right. I had an awful lot to do with it, but maybe not as much as people think, but probably more than some people think. Yeah, to be associated with something really big, people bring a lot of baggage to it. The the weird part for me is when I talk to a a prospective employer, somebody I'm trying to sell a script to, and they're saying, um, I love your work. 
what that means is they've seen Groundhog Day. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I mean, at first I thought maybe it means they, they've read the, you know, 30 or 40 scripts I've written. It's like, yeah. uh, not necessarily. What made you want to be a writer? Was there anything that made you want to be a writer? Did you... Uh, well, it was a combination of things. It was mostly that nobody, I couldn't think of what else I was going to do. Uh-huh. And nobody had really hired me to do anything else. Um, <laughs> And people had always said, oh, but this is really well written. And, you know, I was always writing. But to me, that was just the medium for putting my ideas somewhere. It wasn't the end product, which okay. it turns out is kind of a good idea if you're writing a movie because the end product isn't the screenplay, really. That's interesting. So you were always writing. I wrote, you know, I, I would just think of something and write an essay. I've been writing songs since I was 13. We write all the time just in our discourse with other people and our, our correspondence with the world. And I found that sometimes I would take that extra effort and say, oh, I'll write that up. I'll write up a little speech. I'll do that. It wasn't that hard for me and people responded well. But even mm-hmm. so, I didn't think of myself as a writer. I thought, well, I, I can also speak and people don't ask me to you know, create languages or something. Um, so uh, I just, f- the way I fell into it professionally was I was trying to get involved in the media I didn't know what or what. I was thinking educational films or public television. Mm-hmm. And there was a, I was living in Chicago at the time, and there was a, a big internship that they have every year that they offer. They get 500 applicants for two spots. And I said, that's the job I want. I want to work my way up in public television, and I'll be the guy who says, hey, send us your dollars, and I'll be entertaining. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> and produce good shows like WTTW and Chicago had where they produced sneak previews and they produced soundstage and, you know, they they did significant national production. And so I applied for the internship, 500 applicants for two spots. I came in third. Oh, wow. And I sort of went, okay, fine. But now what am I going to do? I was kind of thinking, I'm going to get this. I'm going to get this. You know how you do <laughs> right, it. sure, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. I did not have a plan B. <laughs> you you kind of have to do that to be a writer in a way. You kind of have to think it's always going to work out. <laughs> you know, <laughs> or you can't. Yeah. So, I, yeah, that's part of the nature of being a, maybe any kind of creative person, but certainly a writer. You always have to think this is going to be the one. People are going to eat this up. Or you can't muster up the energy to do it. So, anyway. Absolutely. I totally yeah. agree. Uh, yeah. Somebody asked me once, if, if you had a great idea for a movie that you knew nobody was going to produce, would you write it? And I'm like, hell no. <laughs> why, no, you have to believe. That? Yeah. It's, it's very difficult to write a movie, even one that you're excited about. It's so hard. The producers um, of, uh, at that television station called me back after I didn't get the internship and said, uh, real sorry you didn't get it. Um, but your application is really, really well written. You know, you're way overqualified to be getting Chinese food for Gene Siskel uh, and Roger Ebert. Maybe um, you should just say you're a writer and, and walk past all those production assistant people and go to the front of the line and you could eventually become a writer producer. And I said, uh, okay. And I went out and I printed up some business cards that said I was a writer. Wow. Damn, that was it. Really? And how about how old were you? When was this? 22. Okay. 22. Okay. I was, I was in graduate school or okay. graduate school at Northwestern. Okay. Um, and so I did that and, and, uh, and 
I, I was trying to break into the industrial market, which was something I didn't even know about, but that's how a lot of the writers in Chicago made money. Mm-hmm. You, you, there were so many corporate headquarters located there and they all had media departments and it was the early eighties and all of the corporations had just realized that their employees don't read anymore. <laughs> right. uh, so they stopped printing up. Here's, the responsibilities of your job and started making little funny videos that they would watch. Sure. Uh, I was one of many people doing those. So I broke in and was able to make money. And then I thought, well, if I'm a writer, I guess I should learn more about what writers do. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, entered a, I wrote a one act play and entered it in a, a contest at the practical theater company. And it, it was accepted and it got produced and, And then I was part of that theater company and then I was part of another theater company that did comedy improv. And I wrote for a a children's television show that was in Chicago. And I had, you know, a dozen of these little jobs scurrying around sort of in theater. And then I'd get all my friends from the media departments at, at whatever big corporation. And on the weekends, they're not using the equipment. So we'd borrow the equipment, borrow the equipment. And I'd write a little script and I'd get my theater friends together and we'd make some little videos. Uh, Here, I'm going to, I'm going to stop you because I feel like you're skipping something. What did I miss? You didn't miss anything. Here's, I feel like you said, Oh, I better learn about this writing thing. And then you just started doing it. What, what, how did you learn about it? Like, how did you, Oh, well, writing, writing is doing it is the only way to learn about it, throwing yourself into it. Um, It was by doing it. I mean, learning about it. I meant giving myself an excuse to write. Okay. Uh, So I, um, And, and what did you learn in those early days then? What did you, what, what kind of lessons were you learning as you were learning? Oh, okay. All right. Um, I, I saw a lot of plays also. I'd always watched movies and television, but this was, you know, I guess this, this was the business in Chicago. This was something you could have access to because it didn't pay very well. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, sure. (laughs) Um, But it was a chance to get some experience. So among other things, that very first play that I did that was produced, I learned how much, a reaction is as important as the delivery of the line yeah. and how important that is as part of the formula um, mm-hmm. and how my script was pretty good, but it was the production of it that got twice as many laughs and twice as much emotion out of it just because of their timing and their knowledge that the, the, the laugh is often much bigger on the reaction than on the delivery So that was one thing. Another thing was um, I had worked with people who were working on a David Mamet play. Um, That one was called Duck Variations, Mm -hmm. which was maybe 50 or so very, very short scenes with two old men sitting on a park bench. And all they did was they talked about ducks. Uh The topic was about ducks. But the truth was, in the process, we found out what their attitudes were, their approach to life, who they were as characters, by how they talked about ducks. Mm -hmm. And I, I got that big lesson very early on about how, you know, you don't talk about the thing you're talking about. It's the, the way the characters approach uh, a neutral topic, something else that is how we find out so much about them. And it's just so much more elegant way of telling a story. And it's, that's a really, that, I, I just want to stop there for a second because that actually is a thing that I have a hard time explaining to students. 
Um, and it's what well, variations. <laughs> <laughs> I, I should, uh, because what, what I find is, and I see this in a lot of bad writing that I see on in the movies and on TV is that people are, everybody's talking about exactly what they're talking about. Right. You're, you know what I mean? And everything is on the surface. And so then the acting becomes stilted because nobody has anything to do. There's nothing underneath. So the, the, the actors are, are probably being, the actors know this. So they're probably being directed to just do what's on the surface. The words say this, so be this way, you know? Um, no, that's a really valuable lesson. I just wanted to, to stop that for a second and underline that for people, because I think that's a really valuable uh, lesson to have characters. I always know what my characters aren't saying when I'm writing, you know, um, do you know the exercise I do say, I don't say. So, uh, I can't remember where I learned it. Um, but, um, uh, it's, um, so what you do is when I was in a, a directing group, we were, we would direct scenes every week and two page scenes, two person, two page scenes. And uh, we would direct them every week, uh, bring in stuff that we knew worked from like, Oh, Patty wrote this. We know it works. You couldn't bring in your own work because that might be the problem, right? You were just learning directing and this stuff. So one of the things that I would do is that you, you have, and I didn't invent this, but the, the actors would read a line would say the line was, um, uh, so how's it going? Right. But let's say the super objective was, uh, you owe me money. Right. And I'm, and so what I'm really asking is where's my money. Right. So what you say is I do say, uh, how are you? I don't say where's my money. Right. And you, and so what happens is the actors go back and forth saying what they are saying and what they aren't saying. And then when they, when they perform it again, all that subtext is what's underneath what they're saying. So it's a, it's a really interesting way to get at the subtext, but um, I do that when I'm writing, I always know what I'm not saying. So that's just a, I think a really valuable lesson. And also the idea that reactions are very important. That's another lesson that I think is really valuable that people overlook. They are very about their joke or whatever that line is or whatever that thing is and forget that the reaction, sometimes what's interesting is that people won't even react until there's a reaction. They won't react at all until there's a reaction. They didn't know there was something to be, to stimulate them until some other medium absorbed it. And gave yeah. Them <laughs> yeah. To tell, they to tell you how to, how to, you know, it's like Jerry Seinfeld said about um, that. He needed to be the sort of the straight man on his show because he needed somebody to say, really, George, right? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like that's the whole thing that react. So people go, okay, that's silly. That's ridiculous. Um, Anyway, I'm sorry. I, I just, some, sometimes I just want to stop and underline something I think is important for people to take note of. So you were saying that you learned that. Is there anything else that you... Well, I was thinking about it probably a million things, but I, I will say that theater and film, television, these are collaborative productions. And I think it's a process that I went through that pretty much every writer I've known has gone through where you start being a lot more precious about your material and the way you want to see it. And this is how it was intended. And why can't you pull that off? And become a lot more aware of how much everybody else is bringing to the party. And it, it's exciting if you can trust each other. It's, it's a great, it's a great process writing with other people in mind and with them giving you feedback. Um, 
And screenwriters don't always get a lot of that because you're alone in your room and then you submit your thing. And right. if you're lucky, there's a back and forth process that starts to happen. But just learning my own lesson, I suppose, of learning to appreciate much more how somebody who's going to do something a way you did not intend might actually be a much better way to do it. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, that's a really hard lesson for people, people to learn. I think. Um, I mean, and, and it's, it's, it, you know, it's interesting about the, uh, when you talk about uh, filmmaking or even plays, although I don't hear it as much with plays, I hear it a lot with film that film is collaborative, right? Film is a collaborative medium. And that's not a lie, except the only people I hear told that are writers. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so what's interesting, yeah. Actors know they're collaborating because they're trying to please the director. If the director doesn't like what they're doing, then they're, they can't keep doing it. Or right, yeah. Shoot. Yeah. So they already know they're collaborating. And the director knows he's collaborating because he or she has all, the, all these people in front of them and a script in front of them. And if they're lucky enough, a writer to be nagging at them. <laughs> that, that's true. That's true. I, 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 uh, I don't know if directors always know they're collaborating. <laughs> so, I'm, not, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Sometimes they do. Often they do. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I just have a whole theory about that. That's just my chip on my shoulder. I have a whole theory about um, there's a thing about controlling the writer, right? So, so if somebody writes for 20 years, uh, maybe they write novels and they write plays and whatever, and then they sell a screenplay. They will be called a first time writer. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and I think that's about taking power away from the writer. I think a lot of the language is about taking power away from the writer. Irving Thalberg said uh, that the writers were the most important part of the process, but you can't let them know that essentially I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he said. And I think Hollywood has that idea. Well, I kind of understand it. I, it's, it grates on me, of course. Right. But I kind of understand when you've got a multi-million dollar production where every second is ticking away thing, you know, sure. time, money, time. Um, the, the last thing you want when you're just trying to solve a problem and get on with things is to have somebody with integrity <laughs> organically what should be happening. I mean, it, it, theoretically, if you're the director, you should know that already, but you're dealing with issues. Right. You're dealing with reality. No, that's definitely true. That's and so I, I understand how a certain kind of personality of writer might be really helpful, you know, offer you my perspective, but now you run with it, whatever sure. you do. And another kind, cause it might help solve your problem. Right. But uh, another kind of writer who's saying you're getting it wrong. That character is not the way. Oh, know? that's, that's a different thing. Yeah. That's a different thing. That's a different thing. I think that that's, um, yeah, but sometimes people are missing the boat. Like sometimes people really are like, I, I remember speaking, going back to Stuart Stone. I remember he talked about, I was asking him a similar question and he had written a movie. I didn't know that they used to do this, but apparently um, uh, they used to a long time ago when people were very old and frail, they would put them in a, like a rocker, like a, like a, like a cradle and rock them as old people wow. to sort of comfort them. Just like babies. It was a similar thing. That was something that people used to do. And good idea. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, anyway, Stuart had written that into a movie 
And he said the director never pulled away to a long shot. So you never understood what was happening there. Right. Well, that now he's not communicating. Mm -hmm. That's a very different kind of issue than it should be this color or this thing, or they should rock this way or that way. Yeah. So you're basically misunderstanding something. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You got to be careful about that stuff. People hate being told they're wrong about anything. (laughs) That is Hollywood. It's like 10 times 10. I, I taught in the creative writing faculty at Harvard for five years And my colleagues were other writers in different disciplines, a playwright and a Mm -hmm. um, a creative nonfiction writer and a novelist and a poet. And all of them agreed that I was treated the most shitty of all of them. Oh, is that true? (laughs) Yeah, really? as As a writer, they could not believe what I put up with from producers and agents and studios and the kind of indignity and the kind of stuff we're just used to. Yeah, is a way of getting by in the business. They they all are in 100% control of their work. The way right. you write it is the way it is. You have an editor who makes suggestions, but it's your work. Right. And it, when you write the screenplay, you feel like it's your work until you give it up. And right. then all of a sudden, everyone thinks it's their project now. Right. And, and you are somebody just to be told, um, you know, now now you're part of our project so make it work for us and you go okay that's the business you're paying yeah. me, i'm gonna do it um or hopefully they're paying you right um, so uh, there is a certain uh, you know big bunch of ego we got to swallow in order to to take on what should be a, a well-appreciated position in in the business and yeah. then, of course i got off this uh, working on the Groundhog Day musical, which was, a, you know, a theater experience right. where they treat the writer very differently. The writer yeah. is, with, with, is the center of everything. The writer is treated with great deference. And it's it, it's not like I need people to say, like like Trump constantly saying, oh, sir, sir. <laughs> oh, sir, Mr. Trump, sir. You know, I was like, oh, Mr. Rubin, sir. It wasn't like that, but... No, no actor is going to improvise a line because it feels right to them without checking with the writer first. Right. It just isn't done. It's kind of nice. Yeah, sure. August Wilson, who uh, uh, was another friend of mine, but he, he said, uh, well, apparently he used to scare uh, actors because he would say they would, he'd watch a rehearsal and then he'd come into an actor and he'd say, uh, that line is this not that. And they would freak like, Oh my God, I got it wrong. And the playwrights here, like it's completely different than, than movies where people are like, can I change this? Can I, I don't want to say this, <laughs> you, know, you know, you know, it's like, that's not the way it works. Um, it's so very, different. if a movie star wants to do it a certain way, it's easier to fire the writer. <laughs> right. Right. But you know, you can't do that in the theater. And what, what the thing about knowing playwrights, at least for me was that, I saw that their job wasn't that much different. I mean, a play has all the same, essentially the same crew as a movie, right? Costumers, set, lighting, right? Essentially, so actors, same music, sound effects, right? All the same crew, um, except for a camera, right? And it's, so it's just as collaborative. So we've just set up a system in, in, in the movies that says um, that you've been to our will, right? <laughs> Right. And it's different in theater. And I, and I just didn't see any difference in the, um, the skill level or the talent of playwrights that I've known and screenwriters I've known only that the playwrights got a little bit more, um, uh, respect. Um, it's an interesting, uh, 
it's an interesting difference. And I know early screenwriters saw that difference, right? They were because early talky screenwriters, sound screenwriters were all theater people, you know, um, and they saw that difference, but they didn't care. They were just making a lot of money in, uh, in Hollywood and they go back and write a play. Uh, right. Well, the satisfaction of, of the playwriting isn't just that you uh, get to be treated with a little bit of respect uh, and dignity, but um, you get a chance to make the play the way you want. It. Yeah. And with movies, the, uh, has anyone ever given final cut to the writer? I mean, that's not even an issue that no one would even consider such a thing. You know what? I would have to say that I think uh, essentially Patichevsky got that on network from what I understand. Um, because that would be a nice precedent, but (laughs) (laughs) well, Patichevsky became a producer so that he could have control. Uh He's like, I didn't want to be a producer. I just wanted my stuff to turn out the way I wanted it to turn out. And when Sidney Lumet, if you look at most, most movies are the director's movie, right? So it's so-and-so's whatever it's, you know, whatever the, you know, their name above the title kind of a thing. Um, but if you watch network, it says Patichevsky's network. It doesn't say Sidney Lumet's network. Really? Uh Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. we deserved it. It was a writer's piece. Yeah. Anyway, I could go on and on about that, and I'm sure no one cares. So, <laughs> you care? <laughs> um, so, okay. So, um, you, you, okay, you were talking about how you started, but I, I really want to talk about the crafts stuff. Um, so, and, and I, I want to talk a little bit about, about influences. I think that's a, an important thing. What, who influenced you? Or did you even know that because you didn't know you wanted to be a writer necessarily? You just had this ability. Um, kind of. I think uh, either I had disability or I had a marginal ability and, and I focused. Right, sure. <laughs> One or the other. Um, I never had a mentor. There was nobody I looked at and said, I want to write like that person. Okay. I, I never had that and I wish I had. Hmm. Um, it just might've made things easier. Uh, right. I, think. I didn't have a direction. It was just like, everybody says you already have a voice. Just keep writing till you figure out what it is. Mm-hmm. And so I trusted that and I just wrote what I wanted and I didn't study too much. I didn't actually, at the time there weren't that many screenwriting books out anyway. Um, when I decided to try to write a screenplay, I uh, got Sid Field's, book on right. screenwriting. Yeah, that was all and there was. I, it was really, <laughs> it was the only one that I found. Yeah. And uh, I mean, you could get, there were other books that I was exposed to that I kind of thumbed through, but couldn't get into stuff like, like um, Aristotle's poetics and, you know, things yeah. that teach you about writing and the basics of Western storytelling. Sure. So I had, I, I developed certain familiarity with some of these things, but honestly, I, I, I had this attitude of, well, if you learn what everyone else learns, you're just going to write like everyone else. So just be ignorant and go at it with uh, enthusiasm and ignorance and see what happens. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of that, a lot of that ignorance. <laughs> and, and, and is that, was that good or was that bad or was that a little bit of both? It just is what it is. I, okay. I don't, you, you, you pick up what you pick up and you use it the way you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, I don't think there's anybody who's ever said, oh, I, I studied that person and learned to write like them and I still write like them. No, nobody does that. Them. Yeah. I, at the most, you sort of imitate somebody's style for a while until you start to diverge from it. You know, mm-hmm. just like, a, like an adolescent trying on a personality. 
Is this yeah. me? Am I the bully? Am I the nice guy? Right. <laughs> and um, and it, it kind of went like that. And I'd say my style sensibility is as much influenced from like those kind of folk songs from the 60s that uh, A Mighty Wind made fun of. Mm-hmm. The earnest, socially conscious, really want to do something good, but kind of with a fun, playful, satirical edge to it. Mm -hmm. That was sort of, I listened to these stuff because my dad had all these records and, and he seemed, we shared an enjoyment of this area of, of his taste with the, wow, whoever it was, the Chad Mitchell trio and the, the brothers four and all these like, what fraternity white fraternity <laughs> groups taking uh, old you know spirituals and folk songs and making them palatable to a, a country a, a, a dinner club audience yeah that was an interesting era of music that- but it was it was kind of it was non-threatening and yet it was edgy mm-hmm. it was edgy politically it was edgy socially and but it was inoffensively edgy and I was like that's me I'm kind of edgy but inoffensively edgy (laughs) I I do stuff that's funny but it's not straight out comedy it really Uh is a mixture of um, various things dramatic elements but comedy is part of it Mm -hmm. and in a way that's sort of put me in a funny place with Hollywood because they just assumed I was a comedy writer because I had a movie with Bill Murray in it and and so they would send me to the people who expected me to put on a little song and dance show and get them all laughing. That's what a pitch meeting was. I didn't know that. I thought a pitch meeting was tell them your idea and they'll get excited. And and it's like, no, if, especially if you're doing comedy, a pitch meeting is make them laugh, make them remember your name and either they'll take that project or they'll hire you for something else. Right. But that's not me. I'm not a clown. I, right. That's not what I do. Right. So I go in there and explain the underpinnings of why it's such a brilliant movie. And I say, yeah, but is this going to be funny? Right. Yeah. It's a, it's, that's a really interesting thing. I actually think that the pitching thing is a weird way to buy stories from people because there are people who are really brilliant at pitching and they can't write. And, um, and so it's a, just a weird way. And a lot of writers are, introverts and they spend a lot of time by themselves and that's not what they do is pitch. It's like, it's such a weird way to buy stuff from people. Um, I agree. I I found the whole thing weird. Yeah. And the best pitch I was ever in, the best pitch I was ever in, it was, I went in with the producers with my take on their idea, whatever. And we went into the studio and we met with the studio head and I won't tell you who it was, but he was by far the stupidest person I've met in Hollywood. Uh-huh. I mean, people sort of stereotype, oh, it's a two-dimensional industry and people are kind of dumb. It's like, no, I've met some of the smartest people I know in this business, but not that guy. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we went in, I told him my idea and uh, he told me he didn't like it. And then he started telling me other stuff that we might do. And by the end, we had him say, oh, I've got an idea. And he pitched me back exactly what I pitched him. And I said, brilliant. And I got the job. (laughs) But it was a subtle subtle thing. I realized at some point the producers and I were playing a little game where we were jujitsuing him around to our point of view. Mm -hmm. And it's all done 
I'm not skilled at this kind of thing, but I started to realize what was going on. And I realized the degree to which I've probably been in a dozen meetings where this was going on around me and I didn't know it. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. Pitching. And I'll tell you my most memorable pitch besides that one, because it was successful, was when I got uh, called to a meeting. And it always starts with chit-chat and, oh, how you doing? And how's traffic? And what's the weather like? And did you see the latest whatever? And at some point, somebody comes around to, so what do you got for us? Right? Um, anyway, we just kept doing the chit chat. And finally he said, so why did you call this meeting? I said, I did not. You called this meeting. <laughs> and he's like, oh yeah, I didn't want to meet with you either. <laughs> and that was when I left Los Angeles. <laughs> That's hilarious. I remember I had a pitch meeting and we just talked about comic books, like nothing else happened. And I was like, oh, you write comic books? I really like Daredevil. And then it was just like, okay, we'll talk about Daredevil if you want to or Fantastic <gasps> Four or whatever. And that's all we did. I didn't get any work out of it, but, <laughs> but I had a nice conversation about Daredevil. <laughs> like they're grateful not to have to, you know, be weighing judgment on you. Yeah. I a pitch once that went so well. It was, I was killing it but they weren't picking up on it and I couldn't figure it out and they weren't reacting. I was like, but are they human? What's going on? Yeah. And I found out the next day, like right before I had walked in, they'd hired somebody else for the same job. Oh, sure. But they didn't cancel my pitch and they didn't tell me it was all over. They went ahead and took it and I was pitching my heart out and they were like, yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's kind of, that's kind of lame. So <laughs> I have to say that's kind of lame, but that's very Hollywood. So you didn't have any real influences that you could, except for outside. Are there any influences? That's another thing about craft that I think is interesting, actually, that a lot of crafts people get inspiration from things other than their thing. So, for instance, um, I have a friend I grew up with. He's a master carpenter. Uh, like he uh, he helped renovate a, a Frank Lloyd Wright house. And like he's like up there. Mm -hmm. Uh, when we were growing up, we both wanted to make movies. And I remember there was a time when he, you know, he had to make a decision about which thing to do. And he was, um, he was apprenticing as an editor for this guy and this guy. And, and, and he was saying to the editor, well, I'm, I'm working with my dad, who his dad was a builder. And he goes, I'm working with my dad and I have these to read these books about building. And I don't know if I have time to work on the editing stuff. And the guy said to him, oh, here's what you do. You read about carpentry and you think about editing. Hmm. Yeah. And that I thought was amazing advice. Um, and and I, I do a lot of that. Like, what does that songwriter say about this? And what does, you know, and I listen to everybody who's creating things out of nothing. Right. And, and how they do it and how they, so what, what is it about other craftspeople and other people's, um, you know what I'm saying? What, what is it that other people do like writing folk songs or say, even singing or whatever they do that influences your work? Is there anything else outside of that that influences your work? Or influences well, you as a creative? I grew up around. Yeah, I grew up around modern photography. Mm -hmm. um, my dad was a collector. Um, and so we had all this weird art around our house. Yeah, sure. And so just the idea of finding meaning in an image and finding a story within a still. And um, 
the fact that people were always, you know, just staring at something and then giving you their opinion about it, what they think about it and what they think it means. It's a dialogue. And just this idea and this sensibility was something that I grew up around. I didn't know that I was going to be an artist. I figured I'd probably be a doctor like my dad. And so did both of my siblings. And we all studied science and were good at it. And we all went into the arts. So really, is that true? <laughs> well, my brother is in business, but he's also a very good photographer and, mm-hmm. and photography stuff. And my sister does uh, phot- photographic collage art, but she's also a therapist. I mean, you know. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, but but so there there was just the, the water that I swam in gave me a, an idea about entertainment. I think it wasn't even art; it was entertainment to me. It still is. I'm only interested in entertainment, but for me, one aspect of entertainment is that you feel something deeply, and maybe you learn something new. It's an engagement. It's not just a, a glossy thing. And uh, you know, I always liked what I call the Bullwinkle. Uh, model, which is on one level, it's just silly fun, but on another level, it's deeply satirical and yeah. interesting. And I said, yeah, that's me. I, I would like people to walk out of anything that I do and say that was fun and entertaining, but other people then be saying, but actually, you know, it makes you think about this and that. And that's, you know, that's my sweet spot. I like it in songs. Mm-hmm. You know, I like it in my, uh, my favorite movies and uh, television shows and mm-hmm. performers and, and of all kinds. It, it, it has a sense of playfulness about it. It doesn't matter what medium it's in. Um, so there's some intelligence, some playfulness, some fun. And, and these things came from all these different influences and they always do. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, that makes sense to me. Can I ask you about the, uh, the blank page situation? Like what, how, how do you, how do you, nothing scarier than the blank page. I'm not the first person at all to say that, but there is nothing scarier. Starting is the hardest part. Um, at least for me, it'll take me a long time. To, once I start, I'm good, but starting can be very hard uh, for me. Um, I have to start right if, or I'm on the wrong trajectory if I don't start right. So starting is everything to me. Um, but it can be very difficult looking at that, that page. And I'm better at that now than I used to be. Okay. So, so what was it like before and how did you get better? <laughs> uh, I think the hard thing is staring at a blank page and say, write something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I need a squiggle. I need a squiggle like nobody's business. I've got a blank page. I would spill some ink onto it arbitrarily in order to be able to say, okay, I can draw something now. And it's the same with an idea. I have to start with something that I can react to and take it from there. So I've given myself permission to not start on page one, for instance. Sure. If I have an idea that I actually see clearly, I'm not going to say, okay, how am I going to get there? I'm just going to write it. Right. I'm just going to write it and look at it. And usually it grows in both directions. And very frequently, it's not something I'll ever wind up using. It's the thing that tells me, okay, that's who the character is. I didn't know that when I started. Right. I'm never going to stick them in a scuba diving thing because my thing takes place uh, in the desert. But right. by sticking them in a scuba diving thing, I learned that she's afraid of this or has anxiety about that or, you know, found something about the character that was useful. When you're writing, you find stuff that's useful. When you're thinking about writing, 
yeah, you find stuff that's useful, but you find a whole, there's a lot of other stuff too. And uh, trying to organize it in your head before you get to the page. Uh, some people can do it. I can't do it. I have to start writing. Sometimes I start outlining just so I know where the beginning's going to be. But, you know, like you said, you got to know where to start. Yeah. Um, but yeah, blank page, got to spill something on it. I start with an arbitrary phrase or, or something just to get me going. That's, oh, that's, that's, I, I've heard that kind of thing before. I can't, I can't do that, but, um, my, my, it's a, it's a strange thing because I have to, um, I, although I do something similar, I will write conversations between two characters. Okay. Like, like, okay, these are the, my two main characters, really my major characters. And I'll write a conversation between those two people before I start often. And that lets me know, it was like, okay, I know I have a story and a movie here. I know these people work. I know how they think. I know I've got something that works here. Um, so that's one of my first steps, but, um, but I can't, um, I can see the whole thing. I'm really, that's actually my superpower is that I can see the whole thing. And um, in fact, it made it really hard for me to collaborate with people because, uh, because I see the whole picture and they would have a suggestion and I could see how it would trickle down and screw up all these other things. So they'd say, well, how about this? And I'd say, no, that won't work. And they're like, you're not even considering it. It's like I was, but I could just do it very quickly. Right. Um, and that was frustrating for people who were working with me because it looked like I was dismissing what they were saying, but it was just like somebody who can do math in their head. You know, I could just do it. Um, it's just a weird thing that I can do. I think that actually comes for me. It came as a dyslexic coping mechanism. So for me, Oh, I want to hear more about this dyslexia stuff. We have this in common. Yeah, we do have this in common. A lot of dyslexic writers. There's so many, uh, James O. Brooks is dyslexic. Uh, yeah. Um, God, oh, he's good. Yeah. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's pretty good. Uh, but uh, Agatha Christie was dyslexic. Um, yeah, there's, I don't know what it is, but there's plenty of us around. But uh, because, uh, and, and different, dyslexia looks different to different people, so I don't know what yours is like. But mine, uh, the, I still have to think about every word in terms of how I spell it when I'm writing something down. And because I have to, th it's not an automatic process. I have to think about it because I do that. And I have to do that. When I was a kid, writing was such a chore that I didn't want to write anything down unless it was correct. Mm -hmm. And so it sort of trained me to be able to do the work up here before I put it down. So people are amazed that I don't write drafts. Like what do you mean? I'm like, I don't, I write it and then I'm done. Um, uh, now, I might have to go through and, and put the commas in the right place and spell things, right? <laughs> you know, but essentially, uh, you wouldn't know the difference between the first draft and the final draft, only because I basically do all the drafts in my head before I write anything down. Um, but that's just the way I work. So I can't do that. And once I write things down, it's much harder for me to change them, actually. I'm not very good at revisions. Um, because it's like, well, no, it, I, I wrote it. It's right. I, you know, you know, it's a weird thing and it feels weird, but, but often I find that who else said this, somebody else said this and I don't mean to Orson Welles said this and I'm not Orson Welles. Let's just put that out there just in case there was any doubt. I'm not Orson Welles, but when Orson Welles said, he said something really interesting about um, when people, he goes, with other people's work, you can sort of adjust it and mess with it and move things around. He goes, my work doesn't work if you do that. 
And I'm that kind of person. My work doesn't work. It's almost like I think my work is so focused. It's very focused. I can't start unless I know exactly what I'm saying and how I'm going to say it. So if you move one of those blocks, it really does have an impact on the rest of it. It doesn't mean I won't collaborate. What it means is if you don't understand what that block is doing, it's basically, that's a support wall. You can't knock it out, right? So understand that that's what that wall is doing. Now, if you want to knock it out, understand we have to support that with something else. I'm cool with that. Um, And so, um, yeah, I'm not... It, 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 sometimes people see, see that I, I, they think it's difficult, but, or that I'm being difficult, but what it is, is like, I can see it. I see, and I, and, and I've seen it. I've seen things get ruined. Like, Oh, I see what you're saying. That was there for a reason. Yes. That's what I try to tell you, but you had to see it. I already saw it. Right. right? I'd already seen it. Um, I think that um, when I hear the way Einstein worked again, I'm not Einstein, but when I hear the way Einstein worked, because he was also dyslexic. So Einstein did thought experiments, right? Meaning he didn't have any equipment to go the speed of light. He had no way of, right? But what he could do was actually put himself in that position. Okay, if I was going the speed of light and he didn't impose like what he expected to happen on it, what he thought should happen on it. And I think that might be a dyslexic trait to be able to do that. I don't know if you can do that if you're not dyslexic. When I talk to people who aren't dyslexic, that sounds crazy to them. But so he just, so he was able to go, okay, if I'm going light speed, what would happen? And just observe it, even though he was just thinking about it. It's a really similar thing. It's like, well, I've seen it. I know you don't see it. I know you have to see it written down or see it played, but I actually see it. Um, but that's hard to explain to people. And sometimes you just have to let people do stuff. But anyway, that's my, the way I, I, I work with my dyslexia is that, um, my coping skill for me was that I had to understand it fully before I could write it down. I see. Yeah. I, I found that my brain wasn't big enough to do that. That's where, that was my inclination. I kept trying to do that. Okay. And I'd realize I can think it through two thirds of the way, but then I don't know where I am anymore. I'm lost. Mm-hmm. I used to be able to uh, play chess with, with this, this kid who was older, who was teaching me and I, he was a much better chess player just by being intuitive about it and, and seeing how, how things work. I could get very close to where I was going. Uh-huh. But the last three moves, I couldn't see them at all. Wow. I could, I, could, I could put him in danger. I could get him chasing, but I'd always lose the end game because my brain just couldn't handle it. Just couldn't see it anymore. But um, I will say in terms of revisions, I've become very brave about revisions. I'm ruthless. Mm-hmm. I, nothing about that I've done is precious. And um, if I get a, this is frustrated studios for, for the <laughs> interactions with me for many years, they'll get a script of mine that they like, and they'll give me notes on it that say, change this, change this. And I'm thinking, well, that's a, a load bearing wall. And that's a load bearing wall. I can give them what they want, but I have to restructure it. Yes. I pick up the carpet from a different corner and shake it out. Yeah, I get that. So when I come back with a revision, they're almost always bewildered at how much work I did because, well, but we actually liked it. Why'd you change that? Why'd you change that? I had to because it wouldn't have supported that other thing you said you wanted. Yeah. But in order to get there, I will start over. 
I will completely start from a different character. I'll start from a different point of view. I'll start from a different time or different locations. And, and I've done that before. That, uh, that I've done before. Um, that's the way I have to do it. That, you know, I can't, I can't just move things around. Right. Right. You know, yeah, it's a whole, it's a whole thing. So I can't just, it's like the leg bones connected to the hip bone. I can't, you know, you know, you can't just rearrange it any way you want to. Um, But I think sometimes people think it's modules and you can move them around any way you want to. Um, And sometimes you can do that a little bit. Um, It changes things. I remember I was explaining to somebody, I think I've talked about it on this podcast before, but I was explaining to somebody about how the order of scenes can affect a, a piece. And I was saying, let's say you have a guy who um, is at a party and he's cracking everybody up and he's getting drunk and he's hilarious and he's the life of the party and uh, he just can't stop laughing. And, and he's just, he's the most fun guy. Then he comes home and he gets a telegram that uh, his, uh, his son was killed in a war or something. I go, that's the way a lot of people would write that scene. I go, th- th- write those, those scenes. I go, if you rearrange those things and the guy gets the telegram and then he's at the party and he's getting drunk and he's the life of the party, you know how much he's hurting. That's right. And you don't have to change anything. Right. You don't have to change anything. So sometimes moving things around can be really a powerful thing to do. Um, but it all depends from editing. The editors know that they get yeah. that looks like it's like, Oh my God, how am I going to save this thing? Oh yeah. The beginning of the end and move it here. here. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so it can be, it can be a good thing to be able to do, but it doesn't always work. And you kind of have to know what it means to move something. You have to know if I move this telegram thing here, it's going to make this party look different. Right. <laughs> you have to know that. Um, uh, Otherwise, you may get a result you don't expect. Oh, I didn't want people to be sad in this scene. It's a big happy party scene. Well, then, <laughs> then maybe the telegram scene needs to be someplace else, you know, or whatever. Um, uh, Everything being, uh, it's almost like being in an improv show. You really, if you do write something that takes you by surprise, I'm much more open to accepting what I've done than trying to force it into what I thought I wanted. Oh, yeah, sure. That's another thing. I've, I had this wonderful conversation with um, a couple of my friends um, here in Santa Fe, one of whom is a, a wonderful artist, painter. Another one is a psychic. She works professionally and has for many years as a psychic. And I was looking at, at one of Bob's paintings and I said, how did you learn how to do the eyes like that? Because when you, it looks like that person has a deep soul, how did you make it come alive, make that into a person? And he said, I don't know. I got it close to where I thought it would be and just kept dicking around with it until I looked at it and went there. I see it. Right. Yep. Well, the psychic said, you know, that's what I do too. I have an intuition about something, but I don't really see it clearly until I say, what about this? What about this? And then something comes alive and I know I've made a connection. Yeah. Same thing with the writing. I think my early writing, I was intentional and very much just trying to make it the way that I saw it. And as I've relaxed over the years, I've realized if you stumble into something that's wonderful, that wasn't what you intended, that's the gold. That's what's hard to find. That is true. I, I find that it's funny because there's a balance for me. 
Right. So I, I, that is totally true. And I always leave room when I'm outlined. I'm like, Oh, there's, there's room for the magic part to happen. I think people get addicted to the magic part. And that sometimes that's a problem because they go, I can just make everything up and that's all fun. It's like, that's great. But, but even, but sure. yeah, but even improv has parameters, right? The parameters help you. And so what I find is I, I create the parameters, but within that things happen that characters do things or say things. I'm like, I, I don't know where that came from. I didn't do that. You know, um, one of my favorite examples of that is um, I think it was Harvey Bullock. It was one of the writers for the Andy Griffith show. And he wrote this, uh, which is everybody's favorite episode of the Andy Griffith show, which is uh, Opie the Birdman. And where Opie, um, the kid in the show, uh, he's like six or something, and he gets a slingshot. And his father says, be careful with this slingshot. And so uh, Opie says, sure, sure, and whatever. And then he ends up killing this bird, this mother bird. Um, and it's very sad. And uh, Ron Howard is Opie, and he's amazing in this in this episode he's really really great and you're like your heart goes out to him because he feels really bad for this bird he's killed he tries to make it fly it's really heartbreaking anyway the guy who wrote that episode said so that you know um uh what happens is opie uh raises those baby birds who don't have a mother anymore because he's you know killed the mother and and so he raises the baby birds and and there comes the day when he has to let them go he doesn't want to let them go but he 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 lets them go and he, he names them Wink and Blinken and Nod. So he lets Wink, I think it's Wink and Blinken and Nod. Anyway, whatever the names are, he lets them go one at a time. And he looks at the cage and he says, um, the cage looks awful empty, Pa, to his father. And Harvey Bullock, I think it was Harvey Bullock. I don't want to get it wrong, but I think that's who the writer was. And he goes, what was interesting was I didn't know what to write. I didn't know what the next line was. I had no idea. And he goes, somehow my fingers kept typing. And he said, thank you, whoever, wherever this came from. Because that's what it can feel like sometimes. Yeah. And he said, so Opie says, uh, the cage looks awful, empty paw. And then the dad says, yeah, but don't the trees look nice and full? And he goes, that was, it, was, it was a really great ending to that episode. And he, feel, he felt like he didn't write it because I think what happens is when you listen to your story, you listen to your characters, you, you don't feel like you're doing it. You, feel, you can feel like you're taking dictation. And it's like... That's the best place to be. If you can get to that spot, that sweet spot, then, you're, then it's easy. You're not pushing. You're yeah. It's flowing. Yeah. The st yeah. The, it will tell itself if you let it. The story will tell itself and the characters will be who they are if you let them. Anytime you try to interfere with that, it's, it's interesting what happens because it just doesn't work all of a sudden. Um, and so it's this interesting balance. I, I don't, I'm not a musician, but I'm sure it's very much like playing music or being a musician, right? There's the structure part. There's the stuff you need to know before you can really play music. Right? You know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very apropos to my, yeah. my yeah. experience here. <laughs> yeah. You know, where, where, yeah, you got to get the scales and you got to know all of that and their structure, but that, then that structure allows you to play. That's right. Yeah. Which is why actors like rehearsal, right? The better they know the material, the more they can play with it. Right. They feel safe. They know they have the, 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 support of of knowing their lines and knowing their character and all of that and then they can improvise within that character's reality like you know that kind of thing um it's pretty amazing when when an actor does that when you get to see them do that well that's when you have a nice long run of a play 
because they, once they've got the material and they've got a few weeks under their belt and they know where the laughs are and where they've got the audience in there, then exactly, they start to stretch out and they, they, they get into the part. They do stuff you've never seen. And that's, I think that's what's fun for them. That's, I'm not an actor. I've, I've done it a little bit, but I think that that would be absolutely the best part of being in a play is getting to know the material so well that you can start to stretch and play with it. Yeah, I think so too. Um, and that it's, it's a living thing in that it might not be, it's not going to be the same tomorrow night as it was tonight. Right. Because that's a different reality that you're dealing with. You know, the, if, if it's the same, it's, it reminds me of what Billie Holiday said about singing a song. She says, if you sing a song the same way, every time that's not music. <laughs> right. And I think what she was saying is, well, I felt different yesterday. Right. Um, I know that if I write something, if I write a scene, I go, this scene only I can only write this scene today. If I had written it yesterday or written it tomorrow, a bunch of different things would have been happening in my life and the scene would have turned out differently. Do right? you do you keep Brian, do you keep the audience in mind when you're writing? Is the yes. audience one of the pieces of your puzzle? Yes, I do keep the well, I keep the audience in mind in terms of clarity. In terms of am I communicating with them? So I do, I think about the audience a lot, but I don't think about entertaining them. So I don't do anything to please them. Um, so I don't bend the, well, people like dogs. I'll put a puppy in there. I don't do that. But, uh, but I will say, I, but I do think of it in terms of going back to Stuart's thing with the, uh, the rocking of the old person. I do go, well, will the audience understand what that's about? I have to communicate to them what that's about. So I do think about them, um, but only in terms of am I communicating my idea clearly so that they can engage in the story? Because once you're not communicating clearly to them, then they're in their heads and then you've kind of lost them. Some people love to be in their heads um, and then they think that's the greatest thing in the world. But I'm more interested in an emotional response from the audience. I'd rather they weren't in their heads. I feel like if they're in their heads, then then I've lost them. Um, other people feel differently about that, but that's the way I feel about it. So I think about uh, how they feel, how I want them to feel or that I want them to feel because people may feel different on a different scale, you know, right. Uh, somebody, something's going to hit some people harder and you know, whatever. But I, but I do know it's like, I do want an emotional response here. Um, and I want it to be something in this family. You don't really have in, that much control over that. You can sort of guide it a little bit. Um, but as long as I'm honest to what the characters, uh, who they are and what the story needs, what the story requires, I feel like I've done my job. And if it's communicated well, I've done my job, I think. Do you think about your audience that way? I, or? I think I've seen too many things where the writer is, is you know, the piece is organic it has its own life and it's 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 got its own integrity but it's almost contemptuous of the audience right it's daring you to get inside your little world and there's something about it that feels um it's it's not recognizing a piece of the puzzle that that it doesn't really exist without the audience um engaged and so yeah some kind of awareness not not pandering to them, not getting right. outside of your characters, your story, but being aware that this is where I'm letting them in. And this is right. where they 
this is a laugh line and this is a release and you aren't always correct about those things. And, and sometimes people react greatly to things you didn't even know they were going to react to. Yeah. Still to not keep the audience in mind when you're writing one of these kinds of pieces seems wrong. Um, at, at least, you know, like you said, it's a balance. It's some, it's just a voice. You have to take that into consideration. It's one of your, your things you're paying attention to. Yeah, I think so. And do you think you have, what is your duty as a storyteller? You think, do you think you have a responsibility as a storyteller? I do. I do. I don't want to, for instance, I'm, if there's a movie out there that tells a certain kind of story in a certain way and gets it across in Hollywood language, it's like, fine, let's make 10 of those. (laughs) Right. Right. And my reaction is always, if it's already been done, I'm not interested. Yeah. It doesn't mean I'm the first person to do something, but when I come up with it, it's original to me in that moment. Yeah. And, And if, if you're not providing the audience with something refreshing, something new, something special, then I feel like you're, you're just a hack. All you're doing. I mean, if you're in yeah. a business situation, yes. you just got to make I get it. I get it. Choice, but I get it. Yeah, I do I, feel like we have a responsibility not to waste their time, not, to, get, not to pollute society. You know, as much as I love Quentin Tarantino films, when they first started hitting the market, I was saying, you're turning violence into entertainment and that's irresponsible. It's just irresponsible. That was my feeling at the time. Now no. I'm used to it like everybody. <laughs> no, that's my feeling now. So I, just, <laughs> I, 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 you know, there's too many Quentin. I don't want to make the Quentin people mad. So, uh, but that's the way I feel about it too. Well, I, I love the skill of his films and I'm not going to pretend that I don't, but I definitely feel that, this thing that he started, by, he popularized, and everybody's been imitating him for 20 years of finding some fun, affable, playful way to kill people, you know, yeah. and making that entertaining. That has, that's a disservice. Well, let me put it this way. If I had come up with that idea and I was laughing and I was thinking, this will be great, I would love it, I still wouldn't write it because I would personally feel it was irresponsible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I could go on and on about that. So I'm not gonna, <laughs> so. <laughs> I got plenty of ideas that, that I don't feel are detrimental. I could be wrong, but mm-hmm. at least in my own sense of, of integrity, uh, I want to put something that surprises and delights. Yeah. And if I can't do that, and if I don't feel that it's positive in some way, and if I do, and also contrary, if I feel that it's negative in some way, I just won't do it. You know, you put something out into the world and that's a kind of energy you've put into the world and it has an impact. It has ripples and you drop it into that pond and it has ripples. Um, and what kind of ripples do you want to have? What do you want to do? You know, um, I don't know if a lot of people think about that. They're very, um, a lot of creative people think, you know, here it is. Here it is what it is. I think, I don't like the idea self-expression. I think that the idea of self-expression has sort of, uh, in a lot of ways, ruined art and made it inaccessible. Right? Well, this is about me. Yeah, but I, I paid to get into this museum or I paid to see this movie. Like, this is hours of my life, but I traded for this piece of paper and now I'm giving it to you for more hours of my life. Right? And, and, you, and you're, not gonna, you're not going to give me anything for that? Because it's all about you, I, that makes me crazy. 
It makes me crazy. Um, Everybody just indulges their own sensibilities and satisfactions. There's a chance that out of those, you know, hundred people who did that, several of them will have done something that we connect with that is original. Sure. That, but I totally get what you're saying. So many people correctly treat the movie business as a business. It's a job. It's, it's work. Right. If you can be creative and fun and silly or whatever, heartfelt, tell your stories. If you can get someone to pay you for it, fantastic. So you've done some teaching and is there, is there, um, are there mistakes that you see that people make often or is there, are there things that students reject like wisdom that you've gained that you go, here's something and they, they rejected or mistakes that you see beginners always making. Is there anything like that? Any patterns you see like that? I think that people who written their first script and they're very excited that they did it. <laughs> yeah always think it's better than it is. That's true. Um, and it's okay. I mean, the excitement is what gets you to the second script. And the right. third one. Um, there's way too much talking about issues. So like if there's something that the writer is interested in, they'll create two characters to have a conversation about it. Right. So trying to teach students the difference between a, a conversation and a scene is useful. Um, yeah. if, they can, if they can get that, it's, it's, uh, one of the early hurdles to get past. Um, what else? You know, I only, I, I required two books for the class. One of them was, uh, I gave them, there were like 10 books on screenwriting. And I said, pick one. They're, they're all good. They're all about the same. Mm-hmm. They, they're, yeah. They'll give you information. You'll understand the language of other people who have read those books. Right. And, they're usually very entertaining and mm-hmm. full of anecdotes. It's like fun. Pick one. I can't say one is better than the other. Mm-hmm. And then the other book I required is called How Not to Write a Screenplay. I've heard of this book. I it's, it's useful because it's full of all of this, mostly style, but also craft errors that are very, very common. And I said, yeah, just don't do this. You know, it's like turning in a paper where everything's misspelled. Right. Like it could be a brilliant paper. <laughs> right. No one's going to get past it. It's like, clearly this person's not educated or, you know. Right. So if you don't know what to capitalize and what not to capitalize and how much action to describe and, you know, you start making those just basic kind of mistakes. You don't know where to put the slug line. You don't understand right. the significance of it. Just basic stuff just don't make those mistakes. Your stuff will look a lot better and people will take it more seriously. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, uh, uh, yeah, it's not a big note, but it's an important one. (laughs) Yeah. I I agree with that. Um, and after that, everything else that I teach is all about just teach yourself how to, how to just write and then think about what you've written and, sure. and be intentional so that you learn from what you've done and nobody's going to teach you more than you can teach yourself. You just have to be in the habit of writing and then learning from what you've written and then writing another one. Mm-hmm. There's, I, I was a coach. I, I had fun I had anecdotes and, and little craft things. And I think when I, the, the most useful thing was I assigned a lot of assignments and I, I spent a lot of time making a lot of notes. So they got a lot of specific feedback, but they mm-hmm. were the ones doing the work and sure. that, that that's all it is. Yeah. 
I, yeah, it's uh, sometimes people are not. Uh, I found that, and that's good. I, I tend to, to not give very many assignments, which people sometimes really crave. Uh, <laughs> but but I always think, you know what? This is hard to do. It's just hard to do. And if you can't motivate yourself, like I expect people to do more work than they expect themselves to do. So I'm like, I'm going to give you some basic, like I always assign movies. I'm like, watch these movies and figure see what you see or read these scripts and see what you see. I might give people exact things that I think you should look for. Look how well this person does this. Look how well this person does this. Look how this, but see what you see. And then you talk to them like, have you watched that? No, I haven't watched it. Well, then what do you think is going to happen? Like, what, what, you know, it's not going to, you're not going to just absorb it through the air. Uh, but I find that um, uh, one of the things for me is I, one of the reasons I tend to not give very many assignments is I'm like, if you can't motivate yourself to do this, then this is not the job for you. Well, you're absolutely right. The, the, the kind of assignments I gave, they were weekly eight, eight page scripts. Sure. Each one was a complete short story. Sure. I figured, I, I figured out the way that I thought made the most sense to teach somebody. Most people um, I've seen most screenwriting classes, especially an introductory class or whatever. It's like, all right, um, you're going to do an outline of the first act and then you're going to write the first act. And then by the end, maybe you have an outline of the whole thing. Sure. When you're done with the course, you go off and write your screenplay. Right. Um, I think that what you need to know to write a complete screenplay is the same as you need to write an eight-page short oh, story. Oh, that's true. That's true. The structure is the same, and the yep. pacing is the same, and the lessons of what you need to do. So uh, that way, they've got experience of, by the end of the semester, having written you know, a dozen um, short original short stories. That makes that sense to me. Read scripts. Yeah. So that's what well, a lot of assignment. It wasn't a lot of reading. I had the, the pleasure of having lunch with William Goldman once uh -huh. in New York. And uh, I was telling him about my classes. And he said, well, do you assign a lot of movies to watch? And I said, no, I don't assign any movies to watch. And I think at that point he decided I was not worth my salt. <laughs> because he thought that was the way you learn. Right, right. Yeah. What he didn't get out of that was, I don't have to assign them. The, the students are so motivated. They watch a dozen movies a week and right. they come in and they talk about them. Right. And so I didn't have to. That was their motivation, not mine. Is there anything, any bit of wisdom uh, that, um, that you've gained or maybe that you learned from somebody? Ah, that's one thing I wanted to know. Is there somebody, a director, an actor, somebody who taught you something that changed the way you worked or thought about the work? Probably, but I can't think of anything right now. Okay. There are a lot of little things along the way. I remember I, I was, you know, very early on in my career, I was working with Harold Ramis and I, and you know, he'd give me little tips. Like I'd have a scene where the, at a diner where the waitress comes by and she's asking for this and that. And he says, nobody wants to hear you talking to the characters talking to the waiter. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to some extent, if they're engaged in a scene, that's right. Fun. Sure. Yeah. But, but just the, the shoe leather of, uh, you know, Oh, we're in a real place. This is what would happen. They would ask for our order. Blah, blah, blah. And right. Like, yeah. Just skip that. It's right. Boring. <laughs> little things like that. It's, it's nice to pick up that kind of craft from people. Um, yeah. 
But uh, yeah, the big lessons about writing are things I taught myself along the way and mm-hmm. figured out. There was very little that anybody told me that was useful. And a lot of what people tell you isn't true or useful, <laughs> <laughs> especially in Hollywood. Well, yeah. Yeah, well, that can be, yeah. Um, Hello, he lied. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think a lot of the craftspeople often have, you know, like I, I remember hearing, um, I think it was a writer on Frasier. And there was an older television writer in the room. And uh, this writer pitched a joke. And um, he pitched the joke. And the way he pitched the joke, I understood this because actually I, I was working with Steve Harvey once and Steve Harvey had a joke and I'm like, tell him that joke wrong. And I rewrote his joke uh, and he's like, oh, that's much better. And it was the same technique that this guy learned from this other guy, which is that the punchline goes at the end of the sentence, right? So, so um, Steve Harvey had a joke where he was talking about sailing and his punchline was, uh, you know, black people don't do a lot of sailing. He says, um, uh, after that first big boat ride, we lost our taste for sailing, right? And I said, you're telling that joke wrong because he would always get a laugh after, the, after that first big boat ride. Then there would be the laugh, but there was more sentence to go. I go, don't say it that way. Say, we sort of lost our taste for sailing after that first big boat ride, right? That's the end of the, right? But anyway, this guy was saying that he was on Frasier and he had pitched the joke the wrong way around. And this older writer said, put the punchline at the end of your sentence, right? Uh, so that the whole idea gets out. That's the kind of craft, right? The joke was fine. There was nothing wrong with the joke, but that's the kind of craft that, it, that basically says, you want your joke to come across? Tell it this way, not that one. And that's something that stuck with that person. Um, and so there's often uh, crafts people have things like that that I think are really um, um, pretty interesting. Like, like I was emceeing a show one time and um, a guy, I, I was introducing somebody and I said, uh, you know, whatever it was, Danny Rubin's done this and Danny Rubin's done that and Danny Rubin's done whatever it was. And then I said, hey, how about a hand for Danny Rubin? And, and, um, after it was over, this, this, this comic came up to me and he says, uh, you never say the name until the end <laughs> because you have nothing to build to. And that kind of stagecraft was like, Oh, that just changed the way like, Oh, okay. Now I know this person's done this, this person's done this, they've done this. Please welcome to the stage, Danny Rubin. Right? Like it makes perfect sense when somebody tells you. So I often find that people who are practitioners of your craft have real craft information that is beyond, um, I think you ought to write more science fictions or, you know, <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? You know, you know, you know, more monkeys, you don't have enough monkeys in your script, you know, whatever. Um, you know, real, real, uh, just, uh, solid, uh, advice from people. I've, I, I, I've craved that. I feel like yeah. I'm all alone here. <laughs> I'm right. making it up as I go along. Well, and give me a call and I'll talk you through that stuff. <laughs> that's how I got into this mess. I gave you a call and asked you that's to talk true. through this stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, little stuff and stuff people you work with. Somebody told me once that, that, I have all these good lines. I need to go ahead and give them to the main characters. Oh, right. 
stuff like that. It's like, uh, but I have good lines for everybody. And it's like, no, no, you need to bring it to the middle here, you know, have some kind of, if those are really good lines, the actors for the their main characters will probably steal them anyway. Right. They'll, they'll want them. Yeah. You know, what's funny is uh, Jack Benny. A lot of people don't know Jack Benny, unfortunately, but Jack Benny, you know, Jack Benny, Jack okay. Benny was a comic and you know, uh, for a long time, he was a comic comedian and, and had a radio show and a television Thinking. show. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, uh, uh, Jack Benny, very funny guy. And, and, uh, Jack Benny would had, would have guest stars on his radio show. And uh, I think it was on Sunday night. His show was on Sunday night. He would have these guest stars on like big famous people would come on the Jack Benny show. Cause it was a very popular show. And he would give all the funny lines to the guests. And somebody asked him, they said, why do you give all your funny lines to your guest stars? And he said, because on Monday morning, people say the Jack Benny show was funny. <laughs> he didn't care. <laughs> it doesn't have to be me who says it. Right. He didn't care. Smart, so true. Yeah. Plus, he was hilarious. Just his reactions were hilarious. He was a guy who understood that he, he didn't care who had the line because the reactions were hilarious. Uh, he was sort of famous for his reactions. That thing you did was, yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot of people don't know that reference. So I'll, I'll explain that reference. So Jack Benny uh, had a reputation for being uh, stingy with money and cheap with money. That was his character. It wasn't the way he was in real life. Apparently in real life, he would tip people like crazy because he had this reputation for being cheap. But, 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 but everybody sort of thought that's who he was. And what they, when they were writing the radio show, they, they would make a joke every now and then about him being cheap and they, and those would get huge laughs. So he, they, if eventually it evolved into that was part of his character. And there's a very famous line where um, he's getting mugged and this, this guy holds, you know, takes a gun and is pointing it at Jack Benny and he says, uh, your money or your life. And there's years of this buildup of how cheap he is with money. And so the, the guy says, your money or your life. And there's this long pause and he's got, Jack Benny had this, the way he posed and it was long. And I guess it was a long laugh. It was the longest laugh ever recorded for the show. People just laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. And then he just finally said, the guy said it again, Hey, your money, or your life. And he says, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Right. Right. And it was a hugely famous, funny thing that he did on his show. Um, just so people have that reference. Well, I don't know if you remember in Groundhog Day, there was that moment where the, the cop in the blizzard says to, to Bill Murray, look, you can, Go back to Punxsutawney. Oh, right. Yeah. Blizzard. Yeah. I'm thinking. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I, uh, I didn't write that. I begged Harold to take it out because it's, it's definitely, you know. Oh, Jack Benny. It's a Jack Benny joke. It's, it's, it's the Jack Benny joke. But me and Bill both felt like, yeah, it's the Jack Benny joke. It's time for somebody else. (laughs) (laughs) It is hilarious in the movie. You know, it does work. But I see, I throw out all kinds of hilarious stuff because that's one of the things that I learned when I did comedy early on. I was with a fantastic comedy troupe, but to them, to a man, they were all about if it's funny, it's good. Oh, I was of the uh, feeling, well, there's different kinds of funny and some of them go with each other and some of them don't. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. Gotta be more intentional than that. But I feel like the whole comedy world is sort of like, yeah, just get the laugh. Andy Griffith used to say on his show, which I thought was the most amazing thing. So he had this team of writers, right. And, and, and he would say to them, if a joke makes a liar out of the character, lose the joke. Right. Perfect. 
Well said. It's per- yeah, it's perfect. It's like, we don't need the joke that much, right? <laughs> like that person would never say that, then, then there's no joke. And if you watch that show, it's not a joke a second. It's not a joke a minute. Like there are very serious scenes that have to be serious. Right. And the interesting thing about that is it makes the funny stuff more funny. Right. And I think I've always been aware of that. I grew up on Andy Griffith. I grew up on all those shows. Yeah. I, I, I spend more time watching television than doing most other things. Yeah, me and too. I think I got a lot of my sensibilities from that. And including if you want to be funny, it, it's, it's, you know, I mean, Shakespeare, right? You have a yeah. big tragedy and then the comic character comes out and it just totally kills because people have so much tension built up. Yeah, it, yeah. A relationship between these things. You don't just come out and be funny, funny, funny all the time. No, there's, yeah. And a lot of people don't understand that balance, but it's, um, uh, there's another uh, rule. This is a, a little different uh, uh, on, on a little bit about having rules in the writer's room, which was interesting, interesting to me was that um, speaking of just being funny. So on Frasier, from what I understand, uh, when they were pitching jokes around the table, you know, those shows are gang written and there's a bunch of writers pitching jokes like and Frasier could say this or his dad could say that or whatever. If two writers shouted out the same joke, they wouldn't use it. Because they'd say, oh, it must be too obvious. And they would throw it out and try to come up with something else. Isn't it? Yeah. 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 It was like, well, that was funny, but too many people thought it up. So no, it's too predictable. I think that's amazing. Early in my career, I would have loved to have worked on a television show. Me too. It would have been, it would have been the, the grind, the weekly grind that I never God, it's just like me doing the stupid guitar scales. It's like, that's, oh, that's the way I, I should be like, I, I should already know all of these scales. It never occurred to me that I had to, I just play. Yeah. And, and same way. It's like, I, I got um, marketable before I really had dug into the craft. Yeah. I, I was a little bit better than I was, or I wasn't as good as I was. One of the right. Yeah, sure. I, I know what you mean. No, I always wanted that. Um, the boot camp of a, of a yeah, show. Like boot camp. Exactly. You know, um, and, and also just to be in the presence of other people trying to do the same thing and being able to learn from them. I, I always thought that was, uh, all my friends on sitcoms too, they would all complain about the hours and, you know, and the tremendous amount of money, but <laughs> you know, you know, they would always talk about how much money they made. Like it's a really interesting thing because a lot of people with money, don't talk about their money. And they like, it's not really that much. Everybody I know who works in TV. They're like, the money's insane. <laughs> like, like it's crazy. Um, and so uh, that, that part of it would have been nice too, but, and you get the summers off. I was like, this is the best. You just sit in a room. Everybody in the room is funny. They're all trying to make each other laugh. Like there are worse jobs. Yeah. It's and it's a community too. Yeah. I remember when, when I got that uh, directive from the <laughs> producers at WTTW, it's like, okay, just be a writer. It's like, okay, I'm a writer. So I was thinking, well, what do I know about writers? Let's say they, they, they are basically night owls. They keep bad hours. They, they have some kind of personality issues and they drink a lot. And I was like, well, I don't drink. I really don't like alcohol that much. I pretty much wake up early and go to bed early and uh, I'm a sociable person. I don't really want to be alone in a room all the time. I don't think I'm going to be very successful at this. (laughs) Well, here's the thing about being a writer. 
uh, some writers are all by themselves and some writers hang out all the time. Like think how many writers and artists hung out in taverns in you know what I mean? <laughs> like cafes, like writers like to just hang out a lot of them. And then eventually I better write something, but <laughs> there's a lot of hanging out. Uh, it's a good job that way, but I actually think it's important. It's an important part of the process. Well, I've, I've come to appreciate it and I like being alone or I wouldn't have been able to survive through this and this pandemic. Um, but it's a back and forth. I like digging in for a few months and being by myself and being meditative and thinking up new stuff and writing stuff. And then I like going out and being with people and mixing it up and being part of a community and building something. So being able to go back and forth is good for my sanity. Um, and I've learned that I can be alone and it's just fine. But at some point I need to interact with other people. Sure. Yeah. It's a, it's a really strange thing. I really miss that uh, interacting with people. It's really, it's making me crazy. Um, you know, um, I really miss people, <laughs> you know, uh, kind of overrated. <laughs> I haven't had a single conflict in months. <laughs> so, okay. So I, I don't want to cheat anybody out of anything. So before we go, do you have a Bill Murray story that makes everybody happy? So they feel like oh, I got my Bill Murray story from the guy who wrote Groundhog Day. If you don't, that's okay. And we'll just say goodbye. You know, for the, for the most part, um, I have a couple of, of, fun interaction things that I'm going to keep to myself. I get that. But um, there was one that was reported on that I just thought was amazing and wonderful. And that's when we were doing the musical and it was sort of clear that there were too many musicals and not enough people. And we were probably going to have to close after six months um, in New York. I, I thought, you know, people need permission to come to see this because they feel that, the movie is sacrosanct and, and that maybe the musical is just ex, an exploitation, just trying to get some money sure. off of it or something. But no, I spent 20 years thinking about how I could make it better and, and make it deeper and richer and a, a more mature experience of the movie by doing it as a musical. Um, anyway, so I thought people were feeling a little bit too protective of the material. I said, I should get Bill to come. So I called him up and I said, would you come see the play? And he said, I'd love to. And we figured it out and he came and he made a big deal of making sure everybody saw that he was there. I mean, huh. it, was, it was such a sweetheart thing to do. And he sat down, he really enjoyed it. Afterwards, he went back and talked to the cast, which was a huge thrill for them. Oh, sure. Here's why Bill Murray's Bill Murray. After it was over, he said, Hey, Danny, let's come back tomorrow. Should we come back tomorrow? I think that'd be funny. I'm going to sit in the same seat. <laughs> the same and he did. He came wow. back the second day. And by doing that, it got us twice as much press. And the fact that he had been there, it was just a real, it was a nice thing to do. That's really cool. It was funny and it was generous and he genuinely liked the musical. So that made it nice too for me. Oh, that's cool. Did you, were you happy with the musical? Delighted. Oh, it's just, it was brilliant. Brilliant from soup to nuts. Just oh, that's cool. And, and how, how different, as long as we're on the topic of your musical before I let you go, how, <laughs> how, how different was that process writing the, uh, the musical? So I was apprehensive and I, I got my feet into it slowly. So I didn't like walk in and say, okay, I'm writing this thing and we're all going to make it and it's going to be my way or the highway. You know, it was, it was not like that at all. Um, 
but I did find through the process that I had all the skills. I mean, screenwriting trained me really, really well, because a lot of what you're doing is continuity writing, you know, you write out the, the script the best you can. And, and then I'm working with this brilliant um, composer, Tim Minchin, who's oh who's yeah, right. Yeah. Wonderful human being. If you ever watch any of his videos or anything, you'll, you'll say, God, this, I, I could spend five years with that guy. That would be fantastic. So he will come in with a new song that, sucks a lot of the oxygen out of the scenes that I'd written because he'll take all the best jokes and (laughs) build in a great great musical piece that has its integrity. And then I come in and have to rewrite the scenes around it to make it feed into the music better and to provide whatever information is necessary to write the scene. It was fun. It was fun, fun, fun. But everything I already really knew how to do. That's and amazing. the other thing that I thought was interesting, I thought I was anticipating very smartly. I was like, oh, the film is all montage, you know, cut, 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 cut. How are we going to do that on stage? You can't do that on stage. How is he going to die here and then be alive over here? And the director, Matthew Warchus, said, dream up anything you want. We'll do it. And uh, they did. They hired a magician and he figured out all the stagecraft magic so that Phil over and over again would die over here and show up over there. And every time the audience would break out into applause. Wow. (laughs) Because they didn't see it coming. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it was very cool. So I I learned more about what the limits of of writing for stage are, which is not as much as you would think. Mm -hmm. And the rest of it was stuff I already knew how to do. And I had a good time doing it with other people, not not alone in a room. (laughs) (laughs) That's really cool, man. Really, thank you for doing this. Um, I really, uh, I enjoy talking to you. And uh, you too. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's great. And I, I hope we get to talk more and it won't necessarily have to be on camera, uh, <laughs> but we can just talk. And uh, I just, I really, I really appreciate you doing this. Uh, and uh, it was a lot of fun. And I think there's a lot of really cool information that came out of it. I hope so. If you think of anything you want to follow up with, I'm, I'm, I'm here for the next, until, until they get us a vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> that may be a while, my friend. I know. I, yeah, it may be a while. We'll stay healthy and safe and, uh, and I'll talk to you soon. You Are a Storyteller Masters of the Craft is produced in Seattle, Washington by Belief Agency.